0: Hi, my name is Cindy, and I'm a grateful Al-Anon member. And um, I want to thank Kara for this commitment. And um, when Kara asked me to to do this, I thought it was a joke, <laughs> and um, I kept asking her, "Are you sure you got the right person?" And I kept asking her until the point to the point where she started to doubt it herself, <laughs> and she went back and um, asked a long timer of the group to make sure that it was me. And um, I want to thank Sue for. Suggesting that I, I do this commitment, and um, I know that the one spiritual thing about this is that that I'm here today. Um, from where I come from, by all means, I shouldn't be standing here. I should be like I, I think about um, where I where I should have been today. I should be on welfare with a bunch of kids and a gangbanger in jail, uh, and that's where that's where I come from. Um, I grew up in a family with uh, seven kids and my parents came here from Mexico to find a better life for us and basically I know that um, part of that was they were following a drunk. My uncle was a drunk and um, my parents' responsibility was to make sure that he was okay wherever he went and um, he came to California and and they came to follow him to make sure that everything was okay because my dad, um, he took care of him and he he protected him every time he got into fights then. That was my dad's responsibility to keep him out of trouble. And I grew up thinking um, something's wrong, and but it was something was wrong with me i didn't know what it was, and um, I just felt like I didn't fit into that family and um, I thought that I was adopted because they were all um, dark skinned dark hair, and I was white, and um, I was called honky a lot when I was growing up, white girl and um, okey, and all, all those words, and I believed them when they called me that because I, I didn't think I belonged in that family, but i didn't really think that. You know, I had that little self-righteous part of myself that there's something wrong with them, not with me, you know, because I fit in where we were at. They didn't fit in because in the neighborhood that I grew up uh, in when we first moved in there, there weren't very many Mexicans there. And our family stood out, you know, because we, we spoke Spanish and nobody in that neighborhood spoke Spanish but us. And um, I thought that's, that's the problem. You know, we don't fit in here. And, um, for a long time, I didn't know it was alcoholism. I thought it was the fact that we were Mexican. That was the problem. And, um, my sisters were tough, and I wasn't. I was scared all the time. And, uh, for a long time, my sisters and my brother, were, uh, my brother, they were my protectors. And, um, if, if you were a guy, and you did something to me, I'd tell my brother, but I would add to it so that he would beat you up. My, my brother is six, well, now he's six four, and he's big. So um, everybody in school was afraid of him because he was, he was the biggest there in school and my sisters were tough. And um, I remember um, my friends used to ask me, are your sisters in a gang? And I say, no, they're in the a social club. Um, <laughs> they had this little group. My parents were very naive and um, they had this little group they had they hung out with, you know, they had the, the jackets and the makeup and the streaks in their hair and the Pendleton's and the khakis. And um, they told my mother that it wasn't a gang, it was a social club. And the things that they did was, it was social. They were going out. And they didn't tell my mom that they were going out and beating up on other girls and, you know, running down girls with cars. They didn't didn't tell her all that stuff. And my mom believed, you know. And I know that my mom kept a lot from us. She tried to make everything okay. And... um, she thought that I didn't know a lot of what was going on, but I listened a lot. You know, I listened. You know, I listened to those conversations that my parents would have when I was sleeping about my uncle. Why is he flying to Colombia again? You know, what is he doing? You know, um, you know, what's this business about? This is a front. I listened to all that stuff and I took it in. I just never said anything. You know, and. Um, I remember um, being in the room and my brother sitting in the living room and the dean of schools in our living room. And um, my brother got kicked out of school. And when I asked my mom why, she said, well, he's not kicked out of school. He's just getting such good grades that he's going to do home teaching now and he's going to work. And basically what my brother got kicked out of school for was he was selling drugs. And my sister was his supplier. And, um, you know, but my mom, the way she made it look is that he's really smart. And when my friends asked me why my brother wasn't there, that's the story that I gave them, you know. He's really smart, and he's working, and he'll, they, for some reason, they let him graduate at the end with the class. So that's like everything looked okay. And I know that there was a lot of chaos in our family. And um, my dad took my little sister and I along with with, with him whenever all those insanities, those chases. I remember um, my bro- my older brother's a drunk, and today I can say that, and today I know what it is. And um, he's taken on the same route as my my uncle. And um, I remember chasing him down. He was in a car with a, he was cheating on his wife. And um, my dad had myself and my little sister in there. And we chased him down. And I remember jumping out of that car and going to the door where my brother was in his car. We were at a signal and yelling at my brother and telling him, how could you do this? How could you cheat on your wife? And, you know, I know my brother was just doing what he knew how to do. He was getting loaded, and he was out there womanizing. And that's what he learned, you know, because he grew up with my uncle. And um, and I remember um, my sister. It's like there's like all these little things that now that I've come into the program, it's put together, and I know that it's alcoholism. And um, my sister, I, I don't think she's, she's a, a drunk. I think she's one, one of us, and she's pretty intense, and she reminds me a lot of Sue. You know, she's got she's she's rough like that. You know, and and she beat up people, and she didn't care if you were a, a guy or a girl. She jumped out of cars and punched guys in the face, and got back in the car and would take off. And I'd be in the car with her. You know, she didn't care. You looked at her the wrong way, she punched you. She didn't care. My friends were afraid to come over the house. She was my my protector. You know, and I I remember my sister um, getting involved with a guy fresh out of prison. And um, doing the drug thing, coming home loaded with, you know, and I remember physically with my brother throwing my sister out of the house. You know, it's like, you know, we can't take this anymore. She was stealing from my mom and she was causing a lot of insanity. I was I was the one on the phone with my mom when she wouldn't come home. You know she wouldn't come home for weekends and i was on the phone calling the hospitals looking for her and you know eventually we kind of knew she's not coming home we're not calling anymore we're not calling the police we're not calling the hospitals and she had to do her deal and you know and i I know the reason that i don't think she's a drunk is because um a few years ago she was sharing with me how she was um, sobering up gang members and she was handcuffing, handcuffing them to chairs and putting them in her garage to sober them up. And my sister's crazy. She's crazy, you know. And and a, a couple of years ago, I was talking to her and um and and then she tells me how she beat up the neighbor. It's like she's still doing it, you know. Um, my sister's still still doing it. She's crazy. The Alanos, the they're, they're not Alanons, but the non-drinkers in my family are crazier than the drinkers, you know. And um, that's just basically the kind of family that I that I come from. And I know that there was a lot of denial of the disease in my family. And um, every uncle on my mom's side of the family has died of alcoholism. We just never called it alcoholism. You know, we called it. You know, he has liver problems. He has kidney problems. And um, when I got here to the program, it's like I ha- I've had the awarenesses through people sharing. You know, I, I remember watching one of my going to the hospital to visit one of my uncles, and he was he was huge. He was swollen, and he was yellow, and I remember him dying. And um, I've gotten to, um, in the program, see see one of my uncles um, die of alcoholism, and today it's like I knew what it was, and I got to have some compassion for that. And um, he was my favorite uncle. He used to pay me to bring him beers, and um, it's like that's how I made my money. He didn't have any daughters. He had um Five sons, and we had five girls in our family, and so he he totally loved on us, and he gave me all the attention. My uncles that are the drunks gave me all the attention that I ever wanted, and um, they just made me feel special. You know, it's like every time I was around them, I felt like I was special, and they gave me that special attention, and um, I was attracted to that, and I, it's like I... I felt like in our family we're boring. You know, why don't my parents get divorced or why don't we ever move? And I just felt like my family was really boring, and the excitement was at my cousin's house, and that's where I always wanted to be. And you know, um, it came to a point where I know that th- there was a fight between um, my dad and my uncle. And I know there was drinking involved and I just remember, um, them packing up the car with, with all the kids at station wagon right and say, we're getting out of here and we're not coming back. And I remember my uncle being drunk. I just don't remember the whole, whole, whole gist of it. And there was a lot of, a gap and a lot of years before we went back to that house. And um, and it's just like we just isolated. My parents were trying to keep us away from the drinking and hide us from it so that we couldn't see. And uh, and you know, and nevertheless that, you know, we'd walk out of, the front of our house and there would be somebody shooting up in front of the house. You know, there would be the guys down the street getting loaded and that's where I walked through there every day to go to school. That's what I went to school with. But to me, that was normal because that's where I thought everybody lived. That's all I knew. And you know, when I started um, getting out of that little area, the neighborhood that I, I didn't know that there was life outside of the neighborhood where I grew up in. And you know, I thought that that's all there was. And when you know, I got to high school, I started to find out that there was life out there, and I started to um, enjoy doing those things like drinking and getting loaded. And um, but that's what was around me, you know. And I thought it's no fun to be good. You know, that wasn't fun. The the people that were having fun were the people that were causing trouble in school, the people that were leaving school, the people that were getting loaded. And that's where I thought the fun was. And um, I don't know how. um, I graduated from high school. Um, I was uh, a... Right below the Valley of Victoria, and that was everybody laughed about it because I did school a lot, and I don't know how I did that, but it just happened. And um, but know with school and being good wasn't paying off for me. It was I wanted to have fun, and you know I started hanging around um, with a lot of gang guys, not girls. Girls weren't fun, um, and um, I'd hang out. And, but it's like I justify what I did. I thought I'm not going to be like my sisters, so I'll just go to another neighborhood where nobody will see me. And I went to all those neighborhoods where I was told that I shouldn't be because if I was there, I was going to get my butt kicked. And that's where I went because it's like I, but Just the whole idea of the excitement of doing what I wasn't supposed to be doing and being where I shouldn't be was was intriguing to me. And you know, it's like I hung out with guys and. Um, dead-end streets that used to shoot out the lights and we'd hang out there and drink and get loaded with them. And I I enjoyed being with them and I participated in that to be with them. And, you know, um, the first boyfriend that I wanted to get married to that I was so in love with when I was 17 years old, I met him the first day he got out of Tino prison. And, um, you know, when I heard that he, he had gotten out of prison, it's like, yeah. You know and everybody was around him because that's what they do in the neighborhoods you know they they get out of prison and they make a big deal you have a big party because he's out and um that's what i wanted and you know and it excited me that he was willing to drive into our neighborhood and pick me up to take me out and um there was always a gun under the you know, he had a low rider impala and there was always a gun under the seat you know and that's the way he he got in and it's like then we would just zoom out to go and um, that excited me you know and i never saw i never thought that um I could be hurt or that, you know, that anything can happen because I, I felt like I was invincible. You're like, nothing can happen to me as long as I'm with him. <clears throat> and, you know, that got kind of old for a while because um, I thought that that wasn't going to take me anywhere. I was always in search of someone who was going to take me away from this, this bad life that I had and somebody that was going to rescue me. And... Um, It took a little while for me to figure out that a gangbanger wasn't going to take me out of there. You know, somebody that didn't work at all—all he did was get loaded—wasn't going to take me out of that. And um, I started to look look for Mr. Wright somewhere else. And um, you know, I tried—I tried everything to fix me. You know, I wanted to be rescued, and I tried everything. I tried um, all hang out with all different kinds of people. Then it's like, okay, well, I'll just. Step a notch up. I'll hang out with these uh, guys that go to um, that um, have car clubs at least they have nice cars you know and um you know it's the same thing. I was doing the same thing and then um everything really took off for me when i started um I started um going to to clubs in Hollywood. and um there's this one place that I, I used to go to, and it was called Circus. And it was a circus. You know, you walk in there; it's a warehouse, and there's any type, and every type of freak in there. You know, there were gays, there were anything, you name it, there. And people were getting loaded everywhere. It's like upstairs. You know, if you want to do coke, you go upstairs. If you want to do, they called it locker room on the dance floor. You can do that there. And um, there were drinks flowing. You know, and it was free for me because I just had to smile and I'd get whatever I wanted. You know, and um, and it helped me to feel like I fit in. You know, and I felt like I was special there. And um, You know, and I never seen so many guys in one place, and and that's just like my whole mentality has always been. It's like I lived in this little neighborhood where I was just limited, and then all of a sudden I started to get out and see that there was another world out there, but I was always, always looking for a fix, and I always thought that it would come in the means of of a man. I was going to meet a rich man, and he was going to take me out out of where I was living because poor me. and. but the places that I was looking for them were, um, I wasn't going to find a rich man there, but I thought, you know, I, I'd interview. You know, it's like, what do you do for a living? Uh, how, what kind of car do you drive? Where do you live? Um, and then i look at the clothes and i look at the shoes. If the shoes don't match the clothes, then he really didn't have money. And, um, <laughs> and, and you know, it's like I, I, I did that. And, and um, one thing is that I know that for myself that um, no relationship ever fixed me. You know, no one guy ever fixed me. And I, I just thought, you know, it's like um, my friend and I, we had this saying is that uh, men are like money in the bank. You always have to have some in the bank because you never know when you'll need to withdraw. And um, it's like one was never enough. It's like this one had this quality, that one had this quality, and this one was giving me this attention, and that one would give me that attention. And I never had any ambition to get married or settle down because I was always on the search. And um, I honestly, I never felt that I could be faithful in a relationship. You know, so I thought it's like what's the use? If I were to get married I would cheat. So what why even bother with that? So I, I never, you know, had these dreams of walking down the aisle with the white dress or all these things that um, most girls have growing up. I didn't have those dreams, you know, it's like I just wanted to have fun. That's all I wanted to do is have fun and be irresponsible and have somebody um, take care of all those bills. I charged up a storm and credit card because um And I really, really believed this, that I was going to meet a rich man and he was going to pay all those bills, and there was just, that wasn't an insane thought to me, that was like, that was to me, I thought that's reality, you know, you just cause all this wreckage and somebody's going to clean it up for you, but you just got to keep looking for that right person and just keep building up that wreckage as you go along. And, um, you know, you know, the day came when um, Mr. Wright walked in the door. And um, he had a suit on and he had the right shoes on. And um, like, I remember telling my friend, I want him. I'm going to get him. And um, it took me a while to work it, but, you know, it's like, I don't think that I got him. <laughs> it was funny, but the night that um, I saw him at a club and he came up to me and he asked me to dance and he asked me for a ride home. Later on, I found out that um, he had DUIs. And he never drove to a club because he didn't want to get one on the way home. So they take a cab to the club, and then they find girls to take them home. And um, it didn't matter who they were, just somebody. And I remember going up to his apartment, and then him telling my friend and I, "Take off your shoes." And we're like, "Take off our shoes." And he, he said, "Don't make a lot of noise. Just take off your shoes." And um, the reason was that they always had girls up there, and you know, girls with their high, high. Um, pumps, making all that noise, so the landlord knew that they kept ha- they'd have parties with girls up there all the time, so you had to be quiet going up there so that they- he wouldn't get kicked out of there. And When I walked into that apartment, and this is my insanity, is that the couch was turned upside down, there was papers all over the place, there was uh, joints in the refrigerator, and I didn't see anything wrong with that, and I thought, oh, he needs help, he needs somebody to clean this place for him. <laughs> And um, I took that on as my responsibility, and that was my way in. And, uh, you know, later on I found out that he had a BMW, and his parents had a business, that so that was even more plus. You know, and so it's like I took the responsibility of taking care of him, and I'd go to that apartment and clean it up. And, you know, I'd go in the morning to work at 7 o'clock and take him breakfast, and um, it never, like, clicked to me, like, he's drunk at 7 o'clock in the morning and um i didn't see anything wrong because you know what he was doing what we did that's what we did we we went out we got we got drunk and you know woke up in the morning hung over i went to work i'd come home at three o'clock in the morning and i'd go to work at seven o'clock hung over and i saw nothing wrong with that so i'm like we're just doing what we do and that's just what we grew up around and that's just what we did and i saw nothing wrong with that i thought just one day he's going to stop and um you know i got tired of that one day because it wasn't happening and i I don't even know where I got it from. I remember telling him, You need to go to AA and he, he told me, You're calling me an alcoholic and um, I thought, Oh, maybe I'm wrong and you um, know so then I, I just let it go but then I thought I'd punish him by leaving him. And um, so I broke up that broke off that relationship and um, you know but part of me was like he's gonna want me back you know he's gonna see how how bad it is without me and he's gonna want me back and um he never called me (laughs) um so then I thought I'd punish him by getting another boyfriend and letting him know and um he didn't care you know and I'm the one who came back you know it's like um my dad passed away and um I needed a fix for the pain and uh, a drunk was a fix you know so um when my dad passed away, the first thing that I did is I didn't call the boyfriend that I had at the time, I called the drunk. And he was my fix and he became my fix. And um, I thought that he could feel that emptiness that I had inside and never knowing that it was a god hole. You know, always thinking that there's something missing and I just need to find it. I was um, on a race and every time I got to the finish line I found that I wasn't getting there and I needed to keep running. And I caused a lot of pain in a lot of people's lives and friends' lives and my family's lives. Um, you know, it's like I wasn't a drunk, but yet I took a lot of the same actions. You know, I remember coming home so loaded and crawling into the house and my mom watching me and waking up and wondering, how did I get here? And looking out the window, my car's there. It's like I, took, I did those things to be with them, you know, and um, <clears throat> it's like I knew that I needed to, if I wanted to be with him, I needed to be able to hang with him. So um, I drank tequila, that's what he drank, and I thought, I can hang. You know, I can hang with him, but the the time came when I got tired of that. You know, I got tired of sitting in the apartment and watching him drink. You know, and I thought, you know, it's time to settle down. And you know, he moved from Pico Rivera to Fullerton, so I thought that's going to fix it. And I followed him and moved to Fullerton too. And um, you know, I thought he just needs to get away from that friend. And he had this one friend that used to they sit on the floor and they turn on um I don't even remember the song and they go like this the whole time. And I used to get the vacuum cleaner and I'd vacuum into them while they were doing that. And I even went so far as like I got his friend in my car and I took him home because I thought that was the problem. And it's like it was it would make me crazy because just as soon as I knew I got him to to the house where he was at, I come back and he was there again. And I'm like, how did he get back here so quick? I just couldn't get away from him. And, you know, that I know that um, that guy, John, he saved me a lot from getting hit. You know, he'd get in, in the middle of us so that the guy that got me here wouldn't hit me and he didn't he didn't appear a lot with that and um, but i wanted him out because he was the problem and um, my disease really started to take off once once we moved out here to fullerton out to fullerton and um we sat in a in a studio apartment a lot and i watched him drink a lot and i got angry a lot and you know i even tried being drunk when he'd get home from work so that he could see how stupid it was and, you know, he'd shove me out of the apartment and tell me to leave, and I would not leave. You know, I'd come in through the sliding door and come back. And um, he couldn't get rid of me. You know, he wasn't going to get rid of me. And we did a lot of crazy things, you know, chased each other down down the alleys. Um, um, he We had this thing where he dove on my car, and I kept going, and he rolled around. And and it was just, there was a lot of drama there. You know, there was a lot of drama. But you know what? I wasn't leaving because I knew something's wrong with me that I can't stay in a relationship, and I'm going to make this one work, and I'm not giving up. And um, so I, I, I'm grateful for that relationship, because that's what got me here. You know, my family's alcoholism would never get me here. It's like I had to go out there and run my run my own out, out there. And, um, you know, it's like there, there, there was violence in that relationship, and um, I initiated a lot of it. I had a lot of anger. It's like I kept a lot of things inside, and I didn't know how to communicate. I didn't know how to talk, how to say what I felt. I felt that he should read my mind. He should know what I want. He should know what I'm thinking. And when he didn't get it right, I'd get angry. And it was, it was like in little subtle ways that I thought, you know, by throwing things at him and, um, and saying, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. And, you know, it's, I, I was going crazy. And I thought that the solution is that needs to move out of this apartment. This is small. And... Um, and uh, in the meantime, I, I went to his parents. I had never met through this whole relationship. I never met his family. I just knew of them. And I decided that um, maybe his family can help him get sober. So um, I called his parents up and told them that their son had a problem and that only they can help him. And um, but I told him, but don't tell him I called you. And um, they, met, they met with me and I, to, I told them everything. And I remember his dad always telling me, Cindy, why don't you just leave? And I said, but I love him. And um, no sooner did I get home that they had already called him, and that just made it worse, you know. And he tried several times to get sober, but it was never because he wanted to. It was just to get us off his back, just to keep the things that his family had given him, you know, because they had money, and um, one of their fixes for him was to buy him a house and buy him a business, buy him a restaurant. And um, that was their way of keeping him busy so he wouldn't drink. And his dad would call me occasionally to ask me if he was still drinking, and I always said no, he's not, knowing that he was And it just kept getting crazier, and we moved into to the perfect little neighborhood, um, you know, with all the white picket fences, looked good on the outside. And we moved midnight the day before New Year's, and he and I moved everything on, at midnight. And we found some drunk wandering around, and he told them, you know, if you help, then you can take the stuff that I don't want. And we thought that, you know, this way the people don't see us moving in, they won't know who we are, and we wake up in the morning and we're already living there. And um, and I thought that was a great idea, because then it was going to be New Year's, and if we started the New Year's ride in, uh, off in the right neighborhood, everything was going to be okay. And um, that's, it's just like that was just the beginning of, of the end. And it just got crazier. You know, the outside looked really good, but if you were to walk in, into the house, there were holes on the wall. The carpet was burned. It smelled sour when you walked in with smoke and, and the, the drinks that were spilled all over the place. There was no furniture. There was only a bed and a couch um, in the family room and a TV on the floor. Oh, and a treadmill in the, in the dining room because um, he said that if he could do the treadmill for an hour, he wasn't a drunk. And I believed. I'm like, how could he do that for an hour, get up at 7 in the morning, work 10 hours, come home and drink? And I thought, well, maybe I have something's wrong with me because I can't even do that stuff and I don't even drink. And um, so the treadmill was there to prove to me that he didn't have a problem. And every now and then when I would nag him, he'd jump on the treadmill for an hour. And um, and things just got crazier. And I yelled and I screamed and I threw things. And um, I started to plot in my head how I wanted him to hurt like I hurt. And nothing that I could say or do would make him hurt like I hurt. And I um, fantasized killing him and getting away with it and how I can do it. And I really thought, I, I can really get away with this. And that thought scared me, that I could really kill him and get away with this. And um, I didn't want my family to know because I knew that if my brothers knew that this was going on, they'd, they'd just do him in. And my sister, my sister would make the right phone call and he'd disappear. Because uh, that's that's how my family is. It's like you don't blood is thicker than water, and there's a loyalty there that no matter what we do to each other, we stick together. And you better not do anything to us because whether I'm right or wrong when I do something to you, if my sister sees you do it, it doesn't matter. You did it to me, you know. And um, that's just that's the loyalty that's there, and it's still it's still there. <laughs> the, the good thing is that I don't have to participate in that anymore. <clears throat> and um, so I never told anybody that was going, what was going on. But I know that my mom knew that something was wrong because um, physically I was I was ripped apart, you know. And um, there was no way that you couldn't tell that something was wrong with me by looking at my outside. And um, I'd stay away a lot because I just couldn't. You know, I couldn't go over there and let them see what was going on because I knew that I couldn't fool them because, you know, I have a sister, She's got five kids, and she's living with that gangbanger still, in and out of jail a lot. And she walks around with bruises occasionally, and she's taking those kids through hell. And you know, one of them's already been in prison. One of them just living in East L.A., and she just had her second kid, not married. And um, I try to save kids. They were my project for a long time, but money, money can't rescue you from alcoholism. Things can't rescue you from alcoholism. You know it's like i've heard keith share it's like you know from the time they're they're set what they're going to be and that's what they grew up and that's what they're doing and um it's like i couldn't rescue them and i was doing the same thing i judged her for living that way but yet i was living the exact same way you know but i thought well but you know what i have things on the outside i bring those nordstrom boxes every christmas so i'm okay you know i'm not asking them for money so i'm okay but I was, I was doing the exact same thing. So um, I, I isolated from my family, and I don't live that far from them. And my mom would make phone calls occasionally to people that I work with to ask to see if I was okay. And um, they started calling their family, and that pissed me off because they started calling your family looking for me. And um, that just made me stay away from them even that much more. And I hated her. You know, it's like, why is she meddling in my life? Because part of um, growing up with my mom is she... She was deeply affected by this disease, and um, when stuff started to happen in our, in our family, she just stayed in bed. And my brothers and sisters, there's the age gap between us, and I felt my mom wasn't there for me. You know, she focused so much on them and what was going on with them that she wasn't there for me. She was in bed a lot, and the doctor's solution to that was Valium, and um, she took a lot of Valium, and she was in bed a lot, and she couldn't function for a long time. And when she decided that um, she wanted to be a part of my life, and she past that phase, and I was like, screw you. You weren't there when I needed you, and I don't need you now. And um, so I just, like, pushed my family away. Um, you know, eventually I got to a place where it's like I just, I just couldn't put, keep it together anymore. I was driving two hours to work because I thought that was my fix, that that money was my fix. You know, hanging out with these doctors and their wives at work was going to fix me. None of that was fixing me. And I was insane. I was driving around, I thought, Oh, it's a sports car though. Uh little sports car with the inside of the car was ripped off because he tried to jump off uh, out of the car on the freeway and I had the car locked, he never knew that the door was locked, but it was the whole drama. I was going seventy and he's trying to jump out of the car and so he ripped the whole side of the car. There's holes in there. That car was just barely making it to keep me to work. And um, you know, what finally got me here is um he tried one more one more time to get sober. And um, I thought, okay, this is it. You know, if um, he doesn't stay sober, I just can't do this anymore. And I remember going to the hospital and doing that little group thing where you sit in a circle. He had his parents and me there, and I remember telling him, this is the last time. If you get drunk again, I'm out of here. And then um, I don't remember what his parents told him, but that just ticked him off, and he ran out. And um, I was like, oh, my God. And, you know, it's like the whole drama with me. And um, one thing, though, that I did hear in that session is there was an, an alcoholic that was um, running that group. And um, he shared with me. He said, you know, he asked me if I drank. And um, I was like on and off with that. And he said, you know, I don't, um, I don't date women who drink. He says, I'm sober. And he said, and me kissing a woman that just had a drink is like me taking a drink. And I heard that, and that stood with me. And I wasn't here yet, but that stood with me. And, um, that was the, the one thing that I did here that time. And, you know, I remember, um, leaving that and standing outside in the rain, the whole dramatic story, and his dad telling me, Cindy, why don't you just leave? You know, and I don't know how many times that man had told me, Cindy, why don't you just leave? I remember them asking me, does he hit you? I said, no. And, um, and it's like, you know, just at that I wasn't going to leave. So he, He went to the the three-day thing, and I was calling the hospital. You're letting him out too soon. That's not long enough. He needs to be in there longer. Don't you know he's going to drink when he comes out? You need to keep him there. We'll pay. It doesn't matter how much it costs. They wouldn't keep him. And um, so I decided that I needed to take matters into my own hands. And um, prior to that, it's like I took him to AA a lot. I went to AA a lot with him. And um, I know that I probably went there more for me than for him because every time I went there, I heard hope. I heard hope for him. And um, I didn't, not knowing that I needed something for me. And, um, you know, that I know today that AA meetings, um, they do give me hope for the the alcoholic, but I need Al-Anon for me. And um, so I decided, I picked him up on a Friday, took him to lunch, took him to the movies, took him to an AA meeting. And I was going to do this every day, you know, and it's like he just couldn't handle it. He was still shaking. You know, and, and I knew, I knew what he was going through because he, he tried to get sober at home a couple of times. So I know what it looks like to watch somebody who go goes through DTs. You know, but I, I, at that time I had no compassion. You know, I thought, just stick it out. Just do it. You know, and I had no compassion for him. And he was a, the kind of drunk. He had seizures when he went through DTs. And I thought, if I just hug him and love him, he'll be okay. You know, I had no clue what he was going through. Today I do know because of this program and because I've gone to open AA meetings. And, um, you know, nevertheless, uh, he got sober on a New Year's Eve, and I thought, wow, that's great. He's in the the hospital New Year's Day, starting the New Year right. He's going to be sober from now on. And uh, five days later, he took another drink. I walked. He told me, I was driving him so crazy that he came home with those, you know, those little bottles, the little ones that they give you on the airplanes, of tequila, and he put it on the counter, and he said, I'm going to show you that I don't have to drink. And that just ripped my gut apart when I saw that bottle sit at the counter. And I come home every day and I look at the counter; it's still there. And um, the day came when I walked in and that bottle was in his mouth. And I just—I didn't have anything else to say. I flipped him off and I walked out the door. And I was desperate. And I knew that I needed something. I just didn't know what it was. So I thought, church, help me. I can't do this anymore. I went home and I had the courage. I had called Alan on before. The you know the times that I call is when there's nobody to answer the phone. Those are the times that I called. And um, this time I thought, you know what? F it. I'm leaving a I'm leaving a message this time. It doesn't matter, you know. And I left a message that I needed to go to a meeting. And um, and I left my phone, but I didn't care anymore. I didn't care who knew or who found out. I just knew that I needed something. And I like when Keith shared about uh, last night is that little pilot light. You know, there's always been something inside of me. That I've always wanted more. I was just really, I was misdirected all my life until I got here. And I just didn't know what more was. And, you know, that next day I listened to my message from work and I found out where the meeting was and it was close by to where I live and it was at St. Jude Hospital and he was just at St. Jude Hospital. So, what a coincidence. And um, so I went there. And I I don't remember a whole heck of a lot how I got there. I remember looking at a lady, and she looked like she was going where I was going, so I followed her. And when she got out of her car, I asked her if she was going to the Allenon meeting. And um, she said yes, and she walked me into my meeting. And I see that lady occasionally. She doesn't remember me, but I remember her. And every time I see her, I remind her and I thank her for walking me into that meeting because she helped me to get there. And she didn't even know what she was doing. And um, I don't remember... A whole heck of a lot about that first meeting. Um, I know that there's ladies in my home group that told me that they remember uh, me walking in and trying to talk to me, and I wouldn't talk to them. I don't remember them. The only person I remember is the lady that talked sent me to my home my home group, and I'm grateful for her. You know she's not in our group anymore, but I know that God uses people to help other people and I know I'm grateful that she was there that night, and that when she shared with me, I identified you know um. I had, um, a few days before, um, beat him up, and um, I walked in the house, and I knew there was a car in the driveway, and I knew that um, something was going on there, and I knew it wasn't right, but I wasn't going to leave. I was going to go in there, and I was going to find out, and when I walked in the house, um, there was a woman sitting in the be- on the bed, and he was laying in bed, and she, was like, she looked like she was, like, 70 years old, and she was all wrinkled up and gray, and I thought... She's her over me, and um, I went after her and I hit her, and she ran out of the house like that. And I wasn't satisfied with that; somebody was going to pay. And so I, I started beating up on him, and it pissed me off that he wouldn't fight back. You know, he wouldn't fight back with me. He just lay there let me hit him, and um, I pulled the blankets off the bed. And I thought, I'll be damned if somebody's going to sleep on the blankets that I paid for. And um, I threw them in the fireplace, and I lit them on fire. And uh, that's my insanity. Um, like, that, that was going to make me feel better. And, um, you know, it's like all of a sudden I realized, what the hell am I doing? You know, and I turned that, that fire off. And um, I, just, I said to myself, well, nobody knows what happens. I know. God knows. I'm not saying anything about this. And the next day, um, I didn't say anything about it. He didn't say anything about it, so it was okay. But inside, I was dying. And that night that I went to my first meeting, she shared something with me that made it safe for me to share that with her. And it gave me some relief that somebody knew what it was like. Somebody knew what it felt like to have that anger inside of you. And um she asked me for my phone number, and I don't know why she gave it to me, because I was really kind of iffy with white people. You know, I didn't trust them, because I thought you were, you were better than me, because that's the mentality that I grew up with. I grew up in a neighborhood with Mexicans and blacks, and we were the poor people, and the white people were the rich people, and they were the ones that had a good life. And um, But I trusted her. There was just something that I trusted her. And the next day she called me, and she would talk to me in a way that um, – I thought it's like this is kind of manipulative because she asked me things, and I don't really get a chance to say no, and I end up doing things that I really didn't want to do and um, I'm grateful for that because if it weren't for that, I wouldn't have made it to that second meeting, and that second meeting is um where I call my home group now, and that's where um I saw the attraction that's where I saw what I wanted, and um I kept going back, and eventually I didn't want to go back to that Monday night meeting anymore because. I thought, do I have to go there? Because I thought, one thing that I, I grew up with was with loyalty. And I thought that I had to go back to that meeting because that's the first place that I went to. And that's where um, I found the hope. And um, I kept coming back. And he, he got sober for a while. And um, one of the things that I heard when I first um, got here was that a newly sober alcoholic can't live with an old idea. Either he's going to leave you or he's going to get drunk. And that was something that I never heard before. You know, um, I knew how not to support sobriety. I learned that very well on my own and I didn't need anybody's help. I didn't know how to support sobriety. And um, I heard, keep coming back. And um, I was really desperate. And there's a lot of little phrases that I heard. Believe that I believe that your life is gonna get better. I cried like, I don't know how many meetings, I just cried every meeting that I came to. But every time I left, I felt better. And um I'm grateful that we were really busy that first year that I got here. I like, we were always going all over the place. And I didn't know how to say no, so I was going all over the place with everybody. And I didn't even know where the hell I was going. I was just going. And I'm grateful for that because I remember one of the first things that I got to do is I got to go listen to our Arbuta Share. And I heard a lot of hope there, and I heard a lot of strength there. And I came home so excited. And when I talked to him, he was just like, Whatever, And when I told him I was working the steps, he said, oh, you're trying to be like you're an AA. And, um, but I didn't care. You know, I didn't care, and I, kept get, I started to get stronger. And, you know, I always had that anxiety about me that he's going to get drunk again. And he told me that um, if I kept coming back, that irregardless of whether he stayed drunk or sober, that I was going to be okay. And I believed. I believed that. And, you know, um, that pain that I had inside of me started to ease. And um, it's been a process. You know, I, I heard that uh, recovery is, is uh, not a destination, it's a journey. And, um, and it has been a journey. And things, things got better, and, you know, eventually he did drink again. And um, when I got here to the program, I had this pain inside of me that I thought that I can't live without him. That if anything were to happen to him or if he were to leave me, that I would die. And, you know, that that, that feeling went away. And... Um, I didn't know. I was, uh, I was asked whether I wanted to stay or go, and I didn't know. I just knew that I didn't want to feel the pain anymore, and I was told that you'll know when you know. I didn't know what the hell that meant, but I believed. Whatever you were saying, I believed. I had nothing else anymore left. And, um, you know, the day that he, he drank, um, I, knew he, I knew he was drunk. I came home after a meeting. The windows were open. There was newspaper all over the place. The TV was on. All the doors were open, and nobody's home. And I knew, you know, so I didn't have to see him drunk to know, because I knew what it was like to live that way. And I'd experienced that before. And um, I didn't call my sponsor like I should have. I went out and looked for him, and I knew that there was a guy that he had just gotten sober with, so I called him. So we both, um, on our own, decided to look for him, and we would check with each other when we found him. And, you know, um, by the second day, I couldn't handle it anymore, and and I did place that call to my sponsor. And I told her, I can't do this anymore. And she said, you have choices. And I said, well, how, how am I going to do this? You know, every time I say I'm leaving, I come back. And she told me exactly what to say. You know, and she told me how to say Because, see, every time I said I'm leaving and I left, I always left that little door open. I'm leaving because you're drinking. You know, it's like I always left it open for him to say, well, I'll do this now and then I'll go back. I never said I'm leaving. Don't call me anymore. And she told me, you know, when he calls, just say, I'm leaving. Don't call me anymore that's all you got to say. And you know, when I got that call, I said that, and you know, that he didn't call me back. It's been 6 years later and he still has to call me. <laughs> and I lived alone the first uh year uh the first year and a half of the program I lived by myself. And um you know, it's like the group was the attraction, but I just didn't know how to get in the middle. With the help of a sponsor and the ladies in my home group, um, I started to learn, and I got the opportunity to to move in a house with some ladies in the program. I didn't want to because I thought this is a step backwards. I'm becoming dependent on somebody when I'm independent, and this just doesn't seem right. And my sponsor, to- at the time, told me, "Who are you going to work a program with at home? The four walls? How are you ever going to learn how to work a program with somebody?" And um, I wanted want more, so I had the willingness to do it. And no matter what I've been through in this program, I've always wanted more and I've always had hope. And um, nothing that I've ever walked through in this program has been as bad as it was before I got here. So I've always had that willingness to keep going forward. And um, I got to move, the opportunity to move into the house uh, with some of the ladies. and. Um, I'm grateful for that opportunity. I still get to live with some of the ladies, and I've gotten to live with a bunch of different ladies. <laughs> They've gotten married and moved on, and um, and it's been a, a growing, growing situation. And I know that um, those ladies have saved my butt. You know, when I've gone through surrenders in this program, and getting to walk home, come home, and have have them there has saved me. I remember I was like two years in the program, and I got talked to very strongly. And I thought, F this. I don't need this. You know, this hurts almost as much as that hurt out there. And how can this help me? And I had a plan in my head. I'll get home before they do. I had furniture. All my furniture was there. like, I'll move out. Like, yeah, I'm going to move all the furniture and everything before they get home. <laughs> and um, when I opened that door, there was a lady standing there. I said, what's up? <laughs> and she saved me for that night. You know, and I'm grateful for her. And um, just little God shots like that have saved me. But, you know, I've always had the willingness to do the work and to go forward because I have to keep reminding myself that nothing's as bad in here as it was out there. And um, in the big book, it talks about um, those who do not recover are those who cannot be rigorously honest. I didn't know how to be rigorously honest when I got here. You know, I surfaced everything. And um, I had a lot of enablers in my life, people that fixed things for me, people that gave me jobs. People that, they did everything for me. I never had to be responsible. I always had the right job, but it was never because I looked for it. It's because somebody got it for me. It's like I've always had those people that have padded it along the way for me. And um, and I know that uh, once I got here in the program, nobody was padding anything along the way for me. It's like I had to get honest. And, you know, after being here and not having a drunk to, to um, blame for everything, I got to really look at myself. And that was, for me, that was the hardest thing. You know, because I had a lot of self hate, a lot of self loathing. I didn't like myself. You know, and, um, I'm grateful for that Monday night, um, AA step study that, um, the Al Anons get to participate in. Because that's where I got to get honest. That's where I really got to look at myself. That's where I really got to work the steps rigorously and look at myself and, um, make the changes. And I'm grateful for the long timers in our group that, um, pretty much they set the pace in that meeting. You know, and for all the help that I've gotten through that meeting, I'm grateful for the alcoholics that go there because um, there was a point where I didn't believe in myself and I hated myself. And I felt like all the ladies in my home group hated me, but you guys lived on me. And I'm grateful for you guys. And I remember my first sponsor telling me when I'd, you know, be all whiny about my brothers drinking and they're not here for me, and she'd say... What a shame that you're whining about those ones that are out there drunk when you've got a room full of brothers that are sober. And at first I didn't get it, but today I, I know what she meant. You know, it's like Guillermo reminds me a lot of my brother. And um, so I get those little annoyances. From my brother, but, you know, it's like, I love you. <laughs> you. You help to remind me why I keep coming back. <laughs> the thing is that I'm a lot like him I'm a lot like him and sometimes I gotta back out because I know where I go you know I can be sarcastic and I can be cutting and I'll look for the weak one you know that's what I do I look for the weak ones and those are the ones that I pick on and um it's like I learned here that I don't have to have fun at somebody's expense you know and um but I get to enjoy life, too. And, um, you know, I've gotten to walk through uh, surrenders in this program and to get to where I'm at today. I've gotten to really look at me, you know, and to find out why am I here. You know, I'm not just here because that man got me here, the program. I'm here because I need to be here. And um, today, I know that um, I was thinking, you know, before when I got this commitment, like, what I have to share that spiritual? And, um, and then when I got here... Um, on Friday, I thought, you know, I'm going to hear my answer this weekend. And um, I have. You know, this whole weekend has been spiritual. You know, God has been here. You know, you guys have been my God with skin. And um, I got to walk through that surrender and really look at myself. And I got to take some action. You know, I was given direction to do things like write five good things that I liked about myself every day. And re- I got reminded to look in the mirror and say, I love you, Cindy, every morning. You know, I got to to put some effort into my outside appearance because I had just totally like, screw this, you know, it's like my outsides are matching my insides. And um I got to um you know, I started to get commitments and one of the commitments um that I got was to um I had a lot of shame about my family. I didn't want to talk about them. But I had some loyalty too that, you know, don't talk bad about my family. That's my family. You know, so um I'd code all that and I got to um and I get to. Um Go to Spanish meetings and participate in that program. And um, this is the first time I share in English. I always have shared in Spanish, so it's pretty cool. And um, uh, I got, i have gotten to go there. And you know, really, it's like I've learned through them um, what it's like to give for fun and for free, and not to expect anything back. And um, but not to give up either. You know, because it's so easy to say, you know, what they don't want to do it, they don't want to work, they don't want to do anything. But you know. There's little spurts of them that now that are coming out, you know, it's like they hate, they've hung out there in the program for years and, and they've just been content with what they have. You know, they've taken um, the crumbs instead of going for the whole cookie. And um, there's hope there, you know, and I know that um, that's helped me to be able to give without expecting anything in return, without getting any recognition, because nobody knows what I'm doing. God knows what I'm doing though. You know, and that's where, that's where I've gotten a lot from. It's so like I I got to step up the things that I was doing. But um, one thing that I, I get to learn is that I don't stop doing the things that have gotten that have helped me to get better. I do more, you know, and I can't stop. And, um, you know, it's like I, I, I think about the things I do, and I, I do them because I have to do them. Not, not so much because I have to because I need to, because I want this way of life. You know, if I let up, I know where I go. You know, and I don't want to go back to where I've been. You know, I've come, I've come a long way and I'm not going back. I want, I want what the long timers want having this program. That's the attraction to me. And if I want what they have, I need to do what they, what they do. And there's no buts. You know, it's like I hear about, yeah, but. I'm like, no, there's no buts. It's like I believe any, any direction that I've been given from somebody with time, I don't question it. I believe it. You know, because I know that every time I follow that direction, my life has gotten better. It doesn't matter how uncomfortable it's been walking through it. It doesn't matter what every, what do they think about me because you're telling me this. It doesn't matter. It's like, ask the vote, what I heard. One of my friends told me when I was walking through the, the, the surrender, she kept telling me, ask the vote. Who cares what anybody thinks about you? And, you know, I had to get to the point where really it's like, I don't care what anybody th- thinks about me. When I got to that first meeting, I didn't care what anybody thought. When I was out there yelling and screaming at the drunk and beating him up in public, I didn't care what anybody thought. You know, so why did all of a sudden I come here and I started to care about what everybody thought about me? You know, when I didn't, I didn't come here for friends. I didn't. I came here to stop the pain. I didn't want to keep doing the things that I was doing that were causing me pain, that were hurting the people that I loved. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's, um... I've been listening to. It's like my friend um, Marcia was telling me. I, I sent this little email to her, and she said, "You don't have to." Um, she told me something about. Are you sending me this because you're trying to get spiritual? I'm like, "Oh, you know me." I was like, really trying to. I was. I was like, "God, help me this week, so I don't have any piss off, so I don't do anything <laughs> negative, so that when I get here, I'm okay." And um, and I come home uh, on Friday night to. Uh, a drunk with a beer can and a kitchen torn up our landlord's a drunk oh, yeah. and um, he didn't expect me to be there He he knew that the girls had left earlier to come down here, and he didn't expect me to come home. So when I walked into the house, there were drawers all over the floor from the kitchen. The refrigerator was on the other side. There was stuff all over the place, and there was a beer can there, and the radio was on blaring, and he was there. And he looked at me like, what are you doing here? (laughs) And, you know, um, he tries to hide his drinking from us. And, like, we don't know. He knows, you know, there's big books all over the house. There's Al-Anon literature all over the house. And, he, and every time somebody moves down out of one of his houses, he says, do you know, any, do any of your people need a place to live? Because <laughs> he knows, you know, we've, we've been consistent with our rent. We've been respectful of that home. And he knows, you know, he knows that, that there's something there. And, you know, I walked out of the house, and when I came back, there's a bag over the beer can. And um, I said, don't you know I'm an Eleanor? I can smell it. (laughs) And, and, you know, I got to ask him. I said, you know, I need some time time to um, to get ready. Do you think you can leave? And he said, are you asking me to leave? And I said, yes. (laughs) And he said, well, can I have a half hour? And I'm like, okay. And, you know, um, it's like, you know, I just got a reminder of why I keep coming back. It's like we get to, to work a program, even with our landlord. And, you know, there's one loving thing, though, that it's like I know that, that, um, drunks, whether, whether you're an alcoholic and you're sober or whether you're a drunk, they're loving. You know, um, I have this, this neat story about him. And I wanted to plant flowers in front of the house. And um, our house is like green, no flowers, nothing. And I asked him one day if it was okay if I pulled out some of the stuff that was on the side and I put some flowers there. And I said, you don't have to worry about it. I'll do the work and I'll pay for it. And he's like, well, okay, I can have somebody do it for you. so no, it's okay, I'll do it. I said, well, what kind of flowers are you going to put there? And I said, I want calla lilies. I said, I'll buy them. You don't have to worry about it. And that was in the morning. And when I came home at night from my meeting, there were calla lilies par- planted there. And they were in bloom. And I was like, I love Mike. <laughs> I love alcoholics. And that's why I keep coming back. And, you know, I'm grateful for AA for the program that it's given me. I'm grateful for my life. You know, it's like I've heard long-timers share, this is a design for living. It's like I was given the steps and the traditions. I was given the fellowship. I was given long-timers with their experience, strength, and hope. And I've been taught how to live life. And, you know, that's really was, that's what this program has given me. It's taught me how to live life because what I did out there was not living life. I took actions, and I was crazy. I was crazy. And um, I've gotten how to be respectful, how to feel good about myself, how to feel good about the actions that I take. How to, I used to hear a lot as people go up to share on their birthdays, like, I get to be a lady today and though. So, it's like, like I'm a lady, and um, I know the difference today. What it's like, you know. Um, I I have this job that um, it's a god job because um, my boss. I told him when I was new because he he was my boss at a different place before that I I because I was excited that I had come to Alan and I was feeling better and I told, tried to tell him all about it and I don't know that he remembers but I know that um, I get to work with him now in a different aspect. He owns a company and he called me over to work for him. And, you know, what's really cool about, about it is that um, because of this program, I, get to, I know how to show up to work on time. I know how to be responsible. Um, I know how to um, – it's like he doesn't have to worry that, you know, he's entrusted his business to me that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run it and I'm not going to screw him over and that I'm going to be there. And he trusts me. And um, the first w- six weeks of that job when he asked me to come work for him, he wasn't ready for me, but he paid me for six weeks to stay home. You know, and that's because I've gotten to change in this program because you've taught me, you know, how how that – because I used to argue with him a lot because I thought I knew better than him. And um, today I just keep my mouth shut. You know, and any time I have a program function, it's like it can be a last-minute thing. I don't have to tell him where I'm going. I just ask him, can I be off this day? And he's he's okay. And and then he asked me one time about – how many people? He heard me talking to somebody. Well, there's, a hundred, there's probably going to be a hundred of us. And he said, you have a lot of friends. <laughs> he said, is it like a club? And I said, yeah, sort of. And um, he knows that I have a lot of friends because, you know, um, some of you have gotten to come to my work and meet him. And um, he's a neat man. You know, it's like not everybody has to be a, have a program to, be, um, to have uh, principles. And that's one thing I got to learn. I need a program to have principles. And, um... And today I get to do a different, too, in the dating area. You know, I get to be in a relationship today, and I get to be faithful. And, you know, my eye doesn't wander looking for something else, because I, I have found what I needed inside of me. You know, it's not a man that's going to fix me. You know, the man I get to date, he's a plus in my life. And I'm grateful for his program. I'm grateful that he wants to be sober. You know, that I don't have to try to get him to work the steps. I don't have to read the read the steps with him and teach him how to work the steps, because that's what I did before I got here. <laughs> you know, and, and I'm grateful for, for the tool of sponsorship, because um, I know that my sponsor is teaching me how to be in a relationship, you know, how to communicate, you know, that, you know, it's not the mind-reading game. <laughs> and um, I'm grateful that he supports my program. And, you know, he, like I said, he adds to my life. You know, and, and it's like, you know, I'm not that clingy needy person that I uh, I used to be. It's like you know, I know where, wherever he's at, he's safe and he's doing what he needs to do. You know, and I, I trust and a lot of, of what um I've got is I trust in sponsorship. I trust in the strength of our group. And you know, if anything that that's the basis of everything in, in our group, the strength is sponsorship and the long timers. You know, they set the pace you know, it's if you want what they've got, you've got to do what they're doing. If not, you'll be gone, you know. And um, and this is not, and my, uh, my grandpa just says, this is not the PTA. <laughs> and I remember her telling me that before. I'm like, huh? That was like a lot of the stuff, it would be like, huh? Today I get it. Today I know what she means. You know, I've gotten to work with people that don't want to be here. They just want to hang out. They want to do the social thing. This is not a social club. And I get to tell them, I get to tell them all the things that I got. I got to here you know and i've gotten to find a, a belief for myself a purpose for myself and this is my belief i know i need to be here i want to be here you know i want to live this way of life you don't have to sell it to me you know it's like you don't there's no it's like i want this for myself and i know it works but you got to do the work you know you can't just hang out you got to take the risk you got to raise your hand you got to do that that commitment that scares the hell out of you and not worry about what anybody thinks about you because you're going to learn you're going to learn through doing it. And um, I'm just really grateful for for everyone being here for my home group. It's like I, I was telling Chris that um, I don't just consider the girls my home group. It's like the guys are my home group, too, because I, I've needed everybody. And it's like I didn't just need a sponsor is not the only thing that's going to do it for me. I need everybody, you know. And um I'm grateful for the newcomers, you know. I got to stay back on Friday night and fulfill a commitment that I have at a Friday night meeting as a secretary. And, you yeah, know, I thought nobody's going to show up. They raised their hand because I started getting calls during the day. I want to make amends, I raise my hand, and I'm not going tonight. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> and, you know, it's like I started getting those calls during the day at work. And um, we set up the table thinking, well, if at all, maybe ten people will show up. And there were 24 newcomers at that meeting. You know, it's like I know I have a purpose. You know, it's like I just I've got to follow that gut feeling what God tells me, and you know, not not go um, with the popularity vote. Like, okay, it's popular to be with everybody. I've got to I've got to do God's work, you know, and that just pumped me up for the whole weekend. And I was just like. I was just like hyper the whole weekend <laughs> and today it's like I got to get all that energy out to be in the right place you know, for this morning and I'm grateful for that I was really emotional this morning every time somebody would say something to me I would cry and I'm like I don't want to get up there and blubber and then, but there was a part of me that knew it's like you know what God's going to kick in God's going to help me through this and you know it's like um, it goes, all goes back to I believe because you believe I believe because you believed in me and I'm grateful for that and I'm grateful for you too, back there, Keith, <laughs> because I, I know that um, for a long time he's my cheerleader, you know. And I hear it from the alcoholic always first, you know, and that's just the way it is for me. It's like I heard it from Keith. Keith was my co-sponsor for a while,
1: <laughs> and you know what?
0: He was giving me the same direction that my sponsor was giving me, but I was hearing it from him, you know. And um, I just love all of you guys, and um, I'm glad that I get to be here today. Thanks.